You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here at the AGO. So I'm a bit distracted because there's a riveting picture in front of me on the screen, which must be one of Sholem's. By the way, there are two talks going on tonight at the AGO. There's this one, which is a panel discussion on general idea, and there's another one in prints and drawings by Maya Sutnik. So if anybody is in the wrong place, now would be the moment. Um, The panel tonight, our panelists are Sholem Krishtalka, who's going to act as a sort of moderator, interlocutor, uh, Louis Jacob and Virginia Solomon. Originally, we had other panelists. We had originally Tom Sokolowski and Frederick Bonnet, and both of them on the same day. It's never happened before. Both uh, the international speakers had to cancel on the same day um, for personal reasons. Then we replaced with Greg Bergowitz and Virginia, very nicely stopped in. And I'm afraid I also had an email from Greg, and the, the subject line said medical emergency. I could barely bear to read the email, and I'm very sorry that he is not able to be here. But we have Louis Jacob, who so generously and graciously agreed to step in. And I think having listened to the three panelists chat just before this, we're going to have an extremely interesting evening. So I will start by introducing Sholem, who is going to make a short presentation. I think each of the three speakers will make a short presentation. Then we will have a really good discussion amongst the three of them. And then there'll be a chance for question and answer. So Sholem Krishtaka is an artist and writer in Toronto. He holds a BFA from Concordia University and an MFA from York University. His writing has been featured in Canadian Art, C Magazine, CBC Arts Online, Book Forum, amongst others. His artwork has been featured in Carte Blanche 2, Painting, a Survey of Contemporary Canadian Painting. He launched a specially commissioned folio of prints with Art Investor, a Munich-based multiple store and magazine, and his paintings are featured in the premier issue of Headmaster Magazine, a queer arts and culture magazine out of Providence, Rhode Island. He also had a, a solo show in Brooklyn, New York, at Jack the Pelican Presents. Most recently, he's had show, solo shows at the Art Gallery of Peterborough and the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives. So, Sholem, please come up. Thank you uh, very much. My talk was on here and it disappeared. Oh. <laughs> my, my talk was unceremoniously cleaned. Um, <clears throat> where was I? Uh, thank you very much, Jillian, for the introduction, and thank you uh, to the AGO for uh, inviting me uh, for hosting um, this evening. Um, uh, I wanted to begin my presentation perhaps by stating and acknowledging the obvious, uh, which is that I am at a generation's remove uh, from from the sort of the topic at hand this evening. Um, 
When I was first asked to, to moderate the panel, to be on the panel, to present, um, I thought immediately that there were people who were perhaps more suited to this than me, um, who knew General Idea personally, who curated them, who um, lived through the time. Um, so all this to say that I'm not going to pretend to a proximity or to an expertise that I don't have. Um, and instead, what I'm going to do is uh, address um, a particular aspect of uh, general idea within the context of Toronto and sort of trace a lasting legacy. Um, and I'll sort of be specifically kind of orbiting around the sort of the credo, the general idea credo of form follows fiction. Um, Toronto is a provisional space. Um, it was, especially when general idea formed, it still is now. It seems strange to say this within sort of the hallowed halls of the Art Gallery of Ontario, and certainly um, there are sort of our art scene here does exist along sort of degrees of institutionalization, um, but it, it really must be acknowledged that Toronto is still a provisional space. There's no sort of firm social hierarchies, there's no firm social stratification, um, at least in the sort of the social organization of the art scene here. We drink together, we party together, we eat together, we go to each other's shows, no matter where they may be. Um, and so this kind of provisionality and this kind of openness is especially hospitable to um, acts of self-creation um, and sort of acts of self-invention and these sort of improvisatory acts of sort of um, self-insertion. Uh, Toronto has a long history of this and it's done it particularly well. And I would argue that general idea are a standard bearer of this kind of self-invention and what I'm going to refer to as uh, self-mythologization. Um, so what I'm going to do in my talk then is to trace that history and to sort of trace three um, moments of this, sort of to begin with general idea uh, and then move on to the queer core movement and then to finish up with Will Monroe. Uh. Uh, when they first began, general idea has sort of been uh, rather explicit in, in saying that Toronto is less of what I call a provisional space and more of what they call an outright vacuum. Um, <laughs> it's not literally true, of course, that, you know, cultural activity was happening here. But the crucial thing here is that um, general idea refused the status quo by devaluing its validity. And it's important not to frame this in the negative. Um, and so, in a sense, by devaluing that validity, they created for themselves this kind of open field of limitless possibility in which they could insert themselves, uh, in which they could create their own fiction. Um, in a very concrete sense, uh, this, uh, the, the, mail, the mail and correspondence work laid the groundwork for this kind of self-invention. Um, you can sort of see in the early issues of File Magazine in the long lists of, of artists' names and addresses, you see the creation of personae. 
you see the uh, the creation of avatars, um, and sort of this is you sort of see the first appearance of private parts later, Felix parts and uh, A. Bronson and Jorge Zontal and you know Mr. Peanut and all these sort of other characters, and they also um, each name is followed by a request for images, and so both a name and a taste, and therefore a persona is declared. Um, so there are, there are sort of many ways of creating art, but there are sort of a few ways of building an art career. Um, you can sort of, I've sort of formulated it in my mind, you can sort of either be a farmer or an alchemist. Um, and as a farmer, it's sort of the more traditional sort of way of going about it, where you sort of, you assemble a body of work um, and you, you sort of, um, you gain notice through the accretion of your body of work and you gain um, notoriety through uh, the advancement of your body of work. General idea, we're very much alchemists. Um, as soon as they incorporated themselves, as soon as they announced in the mid-70s a fixed entity comprised of three recognizable identities, um, they sort of began that alchemist mode that sort of defines their career and therefore themselves. Um, so that, that was sort of the crucial moment of self-invention and self-mythologization was the announcement of a corporation. They said they were a corporation and it was so. Uh, they claimed to be legendary artists whose every thought, gesture, and action needed to be housed in a pavilion and it was so. Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, these are the, the sort of the following slides I have are kind of the um, the uh, the I don't know the the sort of the showcase the showcase panels for the and the blueprints for the misgeneral idea pavilion. Um, but the the crucial thing here is it's not just contingent on utterance. Um, form follows fiction, uh, and fiction without form is still just fiction. So the crucial thing here is that the utterance was followed by a work. And that every work, every subsequent work following this utterance only served to kind of buttress um, and flesh out the self-proclaimed legend. Um, and it only sort of served to kind of fuel their Promethean flame, or as I like to put it, their Promethean flamer. Um, uh, you can sort of see a kind of to to couch this in sort of other terms. This is kind of this Warhol, this sort of twist on a Warholian gesture. Um, Warhol sort of famously said to just sort of look at the surface of my paintings and my films and me, and there I am. And sort of his art was therefore an advertisement for itself. Now, General Idea, on the other hand, created self-advertisements as their art. So the more they did the more they uttered and the more they created, every creation was, um, was, a further, was further evidence of the utterance. Um, the work spawned out of the legend rather than the legend springing up from the work. Um, and sort of this is the kind of self-mythologization that I'm now going to sort of take into sort of other areas. Um, more of the Promethean flamer. <laughs> um, 
1985, Bruce LaBruce and G.B. Jones released a zine called JDs, short for Juvenile Delinquents, which claimed that there was a full-fledged uh, queer punk scene already thriving in Toronto. And somehow that made it so. Um, again, it's important to remember, uh, form follows fiction. It's not just that there was this central fiction of the queer punk scene in Toronto, but JD's was the documentary evidence of it, sort of a posteriori. So the myth of um, the myth of queercore at this time it was homocore. Um, so the myth of queercore was not only disseminated by zines, by mixtapes, by a network of international correspondence. Um, it was sort of affirmed by that network, and it was buttressed by that network, and it was fleshed out by that network. So again, the idea of homocore, excuse me, um, the idea, the sort of, um, the validity and the truth of sort of the homocore movement was, um, was both um, a function of and affirmed by this kind of, this, this sort of network of zines. Um, there are other tactics um, that are sort of shared with general idea. Um, both, you know, G.B. Jones was an art student. Bruce LaBruce uh, was, uh, had a sort of a graduate degree in film studies. So they both had, um, they both had a knack for polemics they both had a knack for, um, for media manipulation. Um, G.B. Jones's Tom Girl drawings, if I can borrow a phrase from, from Philip Monk's talk last week, they operate very much in that same sort of mode of the stealing in and out of meaning, where they sort of, um, they're premised on Tom of Finland's, uh, Tom of Finland's um, sort of rough trade uh, sexcapades, um, but they substitute uh, they substitute um, uh, lesbian um, stereotypes and and sort of les sort of this this macho the macho dyke for the sort of the leather clone and the the, the leather fag. Um, oop, too soon. Um, Bruce LeBruce himself. Um, also, sort of, there's a sort of particular in his in his sort of mode of self mythology in all of his films. He enacts um, he enacts sort of various versions of himself in, in sort of in Hustler White, in Super Eight and a Half, in No Skin Off My Ass. There's a sort of central character of this kind of lonely uh, gay filmmaker, um, which again is sort of the creation of an avatar. It's the blurring of fiction and reality, it's the creation of an identity as a front, and it's from that front where he, where sort of all of his speech comes from, uh, which is, I think, very much inherited, um, and sort of can be, can be sort of linked, at least critically linked to, uh, to the General Idea Project. Um, and of course, uh, another sort of further link is um, the sort of issue of File Magazine, the Punk Till You Puke issue, which I think is sort of a, touch to a touchstone for the queer movement, not only because it announced the parameters 
at least, at the very least, to a Toronto audience, but it announced the parameters of a sort of a newly emergent international punk scene. Um, it also declared uh, the credo of zine culture, which sort of in its opening manifesto, sort of at the very bottom of the page, it says, it's cheap, it's easy, go do it. Um, and so... If General Idea laid the found like sort of um, if General Idea laid the groundwork for an alternative and a queer art scene in Toronto, then Homo slash Queercore um, sort of furthered that legend and brought what we now know as the queer West scene into being. Um, Homo Core and its insistence on melding um, punk culture and gay culture on trying to find an in-between space where sort of the homocore kids didn't fit into the hardcore punk scene, nor did they fit into the village scene. They announced this in-between space, um, which is sort of very much foundational to, to sort of the queer, the idea of queer West uh, as it exists now in Toronto. And now is the right time for that slide. <laughs> um, so queer West has become especially in sort of in these in these days of ludicrous overdevelopment um, and the sort of the radical change of face of of the Queen Street West. Um, Queer West has become this sort of strangely efficient marketing handle. Um, But you sort of you try and think about what it actually refers to and you try and think about its concrete realities. It's very geographically it's sort of well it's geographically diffuse. Um, unlike the gay village, which is located on a sort of a certain strip of land and is evidenced by sort of, by, um, by sort of precise geographical locations, Queer West is a little harder to, to locate. Um, there's no sort of central strip to it. You can say it exists maybe at the Beaver, sort of, kind of, but of course there are other nights that happen in other places. Um, Vaseline happened at Lee's Palace. Club V happened at a small club in Kensington Market. So it's, it's diffuse, and it's more of a persona than anything else. Um, and um, again, this queer, this queer West persona is very much indebted to sort of the, the lineage of homocore, which is sort of this idea of, of finding this space outside of the gay village finding this space outside of what is perceived as sort of the very, the insistence on, um, on specific uh, social codes and social behaviors. Um, and Will Monroe, I think, was sort of the sort of the great avatar of the, among, among many other things. Um, he was sort of the, sort of the, the standard, the torchbearer for, for this. Um, and he was... In, in a very real sense, he was a kind of a social shaman um, in that these parties that he organized, Club V, Vaseline, um, sort of his numerous events, they weren't just parties, they actually sort of, you can interpret them as rituals that really birthed a persona um, and that birthed an identity that's become central to, um, to sort of living as a queer person in Toronto. Um, in terms of his art, and it's not really easily, sort of his parties and his art are sort of not easily separable in my opinion, um, he kind of brings queer core and general idea sort of together. Um, 
the, the sort of the public persona of his parties were very much those posters uh, sort of designed by Michael Como and various others which borrowed heavily from a zine influence and were very much, um, very much of that kind of sort of zine, no-fi aesthetic. Um, and they sort of, again, they announced the parameters of this persona just as much as the actual parties did. Um, in the terms of the work that he showed at galleries, Again, it sort of operates by this same mechanism of stealing in and stealing out. Um, and here he's sort of repurposing uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon into um, an AIDS activist poster. Um, and so in the end, his own project um, contingent as it is, and you sort of, I, I think he would have been the first to admit that his project is very much contingent on this sort of particular history and this sort of strain of self-invention that, that sort of has carried through in Toronto. His project doesn't necessarily um, affirm a pre-existing legend in the way sort of Homocore and General Idea did. Um, his project sort of... Um, is more forward, uh, mm, I hesitate to use the word forward-looking because of that, what that implies. In any, in any sense, it's more utopic than that, or at least it has a, a sort of a more utopic um, project. Um, through his kind of sort of historical mashups, through his stealing out, his sort of stealing in and stealing out, um, he suggests um, not so much a, a sort of a previous legend, but if I can paraphrase Paris's Burning, he announces an upcoming legend. Um, he declares a lineage, and he implies not just a persona, but a space. And through collage and juxtaposition, he refuses the validity of a status quo, and he offers, this, he offers um, a utopic queer space of, of sort of self-invention and improvisation. Thank you. And now I would like to introduce the next speaker. Uh, I'll get this all set up for you, Louis. Uh, Louis Jacob uh, graduated from the University of Toronto with degrees in philosophy and semiotics in 1996 and has been actively participating in artist-initiated exhibitions and projects for two decades. Working as an artist, curator, and writer, Louis Jacobs' diverse practice has addressed issues of social interaction and the subjectivity of aesthetic experience. Highlights of his recent work include solo exhibitions at the Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art, Toronto in 2011, Art in General, New York City, 2010, The Fonderie Darling in Montreal in 2010, the Städtisches Museum Abteiburg Mönchengladbach, Germany, 2009, and the Hamburger Kunstverein in Hamburg, Germany in 2008. He participated in the exhibition House Guests, Contemporary Art at the Grange, the Art Gallery of Ontario in 2002. And during the reopening of the AGO, Louis Jacobs' work was displayed as part of the permanent collection in the Lind Galleries in 2008. Please welcome to the stage Louis Jacob.
thank you uh, for the introduction. It's an honor for me to be speaking uh, as part of this panel, uh, and especially uh, to know that A. Bronson is in the house, and uh, it's, it's amazing to be able to uh, be understanding the work that he and General Idea constructed uh, and to understand it in these uh, different perspectives. Um, one thing that I'd like to mention is that the, the talk that I'm about to give, I've presented it in the past at the power plant during a panel discussion that they had. Uh, so I apologize in advance for anyone that's already heard this. Um, and uh, I want to mention that uh, I'll not only be showing the work of General Idea, I'm also going to be showing the work of Image Bank as well as my own work uh, because the talk was uh, presented in the context of an exhibition that I participated in at, at the power plant. Uh, and the second thing that I want to say is that this talk um, emerges from many discussions that I've had with Barbara Fisher. Uh, so I want to acknowledge uh, my indebtedness uh, to her uh, in, in some of these ideas. Okay. Um, I'll begin by saying that historical continuity is the Achilles heel of Toronto art making. Uh, more precisely, the absence in the city of a sense of historical continuity renders the act of making art into a poignant but self-defeated gesture. If we agree that artistic production is a communicative practice, an exercise in which the meaning of community becomes an issue, then a lack of historical context amounts to something like a lack of language, a lack of publicness. Exhibition would follow exhibition, artist would follow artist, decade would follow decade, and quickly each of these would sink into our collective amnesia, into the black hole of cultural disregard. Um, one must ask what the situation would mean for artists. How would a person, especially a young one, Envision being an artist in the face of this radical atomization without a public, without a language. Making art would be defeated in advance if artists are unable to create or even to imagine their own ideal audience and the world for which their work is created. In the absence of history, people turn to myth. In the absence of history, we begin to gossip to enact what Robert Filieu called a whispered art history. More than 20 years ago, A. A. Bronson, of General Idea, curated an exhibition at the power plant called From Sea to Shining Sea, Artist-Initiated Activity in Canada, 1939 to 1987. The exhibition and the accompanying publication function, at least for me, as a kind of manifesto about what artistic culture can mean here in Canada. AA posited that a series of independent in initiatives begun in the late 30s had culminated in the 70s and 80s in a coast-to-coast -coast network of self-organized galleries and publications. This network created a viable culture that stood in sharp contrast to the state museums and commercial galleries that dominated the Canadian art world. Bronson's vision of culture, as presented in From Sea to Shining Sea, was essentially a network one. That is, culture appeared to be based less on individual figures or institutions than on what arises when one connects the dots between these individualities. Uh, he wrote in his catalog text, 
As an artist writing about museums by artists, about my own history, which is a history beginning in 1968, a Canadian history, a Canadian story with elaborately Canadian characters dreaming the Canadian dream of one community that is a network of communities C to C. What is striking in uh, A's description is its tentative tone, its characterization of the cultural network as a kind of dream of community. He continues that Canadian artists find themselves wanting a Canadian art scene just like in New York or London or Paris in the 30s. And yet, Canadian artists are typically unable to picture the reality of a Canadian art scene except as a dream projected upon the national landscape as a sea to shining sea connective tissue. For Bronson then, the Canadian dream of one community that is a network of communities appears here as something lacking, as an absence, and therefore something to desire and to project upon the landscape around us. He continues to describe this community. A dream community connected by and reflected by the media that is authenticated by its own reflection in the media. As such a Canadian artist desiring to see not necessarily himself, but the picture of his art scene pictured on TV. And knowing the impossibility of an art scene without real museums, the Art Gallery of Ontario was not a real museum for us, without real magazines, and Arts Canada was not a real magazine for us, without real artists. No, Harold Town was not a real artist for us, and we forgot that we ourselves were real artists because we had not seen ourselves in the media. Real artists, like Frank Stella, appeared in Art Forum magazine. Here, it's worth wondering what Bronson means when he writes about the media. The tendency today is to make media synonymous with new mass communication technologies like television, like video, and the internet. And certainly, Bronson points us in this direction when he describes the myth of the Canadian artist desiring to see the picture of his art scene pictured on TV. Undeniably, the artists of Bronson's generation, especially those connected with the intermedia scene in Vancouver in the late 60s, were informed by Marshall McLuhan's theories of the effects of new media upon consciousness, culture, and social formations. When Bronson refers to media, however, he is, pointed to, he is pointing to something broader than simply new media. Media is rather anything that stands between as a mediating channel that's conducive to a network culture. For Bronson, the media is a means of fabricating a tissue. This insight, the notion that media is whatever stands between as a means of fabricating a tissue, emerged, I believe, from Bronson's involvement with the underground newspaper scene in Winnipeg in the 60s, his work in the small press and small theater scene in Toronto, as well as his interaction with the Vancouver scene of the early 70s. In particular, I'd like to consider the Vancouver scene's um, fascinating merging together of McLuhan's media theory with the Fluxus ideas of Robert Filio and uh, George Brecht. Filio's idea of the eternal network has come to refer to the international network of artists who for many decades now continue to produce and exchange artistic activity using the postal system. And uh, Sholem in his talk alluded um, to this correspondence art network. Mail art, or correspondence art, 
creates an eternal network to the extent that these artists utilize an already existing channel of communication, the mail, as a ready-made conduit for fabricating a tissue. The writer Estera Millman describes it in this way. The primary defining characteristic of all correspondence art networks is that their communication cultures and their pure transitive state outside the museum, the gallery, and the alternative space system. Correspondence works are overtly transactional. They serve as a means by which community is established and through which members of the culture interact. Michael Morris's Nothing by Mouth, made in 1971, was produced as a contribution to artist Dana Atchley's correspondence project, Space Atlas. In Morris's words, Dana invited people that he knew around his network to send him a hundred self-made pages. He assembled all these things, packaged it, and sent a copy out to people who had participated. A hundred copies for a hundred people. It was all sent out and everybody saw what each other was doing. Our image bank pages, uh, so what he produced here, were perforated postcards on a page, postcards that could be used. They were invitations to send original postcards for our image bank postcard show, which was in 1971. Those pages were building image bank. So, so this was a page in the, um, in the space atlas and the nothing by mouth card uh, was punctured so that you could uh, tear it out of the page and use it as a postcard um, that would constitute part of this uh, image bank postcard show. To my mind, this is an exemplary instance of how the network works, of the connect the dots impulse that Millman described as the network's overly transactional methodology. Dana Ashley's original invitation resulted in the creation and submission of 100 artistic responses, which he then collected together and sent back to the artists who had, who had replied. Each of these replies, in principle, could act as yet more invitations to further participation that created a decentered network of creative activity. What's most interesting to me about this work is Morris's idea of mediation. Nothing by mouth, as a postcard says, suggests that the network method entails a move away from the immediacy of the mouth, the proximity and intimacy of mouth-to-mouth -mouth communication, and the imminent relationships that it engenders. This move away from immediacy is simultaneously a move towards the mediatedness of the media. This media could involve the new media of Onkawara's telegrams or anything company's faxes, for example but it could equally utilize the old media of the postal system. So when A. A. Bronson writes about the dream of one community that is a network of communities, he's indicating to us, I believe, the always tentative or propositional possibility of a community created by mediation rather than by immediacy. And the defining quality of McLuhan's global village is precisely that it is not a village. For an artist, Mediation presents an intractable dilemma, I think. For an artist who works in a community that is a network of communities, and a village that cannot possibly be a village because it is global, the question of here becomes very tricky terrain. I might well correspond with artists as far away as Vienna and Berlin and Johannesburg, 
and read art forum with the avidity of a celebrity hound. I might feel totally up to date with art world developments in the biennial circuit and have done the grand tour of 2007. But how do I relate to the people next to me, right here in this place that we call Toronto? The question of place, of here, is precisely the question of audience and peership, the oral being together of proximity and immediacy. So the question I'd like to ask is, what's the relationship between culture by mouth and culture by media? General Idea's answer to this question is typically ambivalent, and it's colored by a poignancy that uniquely belongs to irony. In their performance, Towards an Audience Vocabulary uh, from 1978, General Idea rehearsed their local audience in appropriate audience responses, characteristic of a real audience. Fern Baer describes a performance like this. General Idea used the television-style studio format in which 36 local Toronto celebrities were placed on stage in the concert hall of the Masonic Temple, performing the various audience responses, uh, wearing the censor sunglasses, laughing, gasping, booing, sleeping, clapping, and doing uh, standing ovations. It left the real audience confused about their own role and conscious of that fact. Eventually, at the end, the real audience gave their standing ovation to the performer's own standing ovation. So here are the different kind of appropriate audience responses, including the standing ovation. To my eyes, general idea can dream the audience, but it does so only on condition that it dreams of an inorganic audience. That is an audience that emerges not spontaneously, not naturally from its own culture, but artificially, theatrically, out of its own lack of artistic culture. The audience in a project like this, I believe it's made to, is made to, go, to undergo a mediatization of itself. An artifice is introduced so that it stands between the audience, splitting the audience into two. A factical audience, that, that is the, the people who attended the performance, and a performing audience. When the performing audience reflects the factical audience, it does so not to reveal the audience as it is, but as it is not. In order to construct a vocabulary, the factical audience is rehearsed into what it is being dreamed of becoming a real audience. According to Flux's artist Ken Friedman, when Robert Filia developed his concept of the eternal network, he was thinking of the human condition rather than art. Filieu held that the purpose of art was to make life more important than art. But any discussion of the eternal network of correspondence art must be a discussion of art to some degree. And it's worth investigating the differences and key issues. So according to Ken Friedman, um, the art world plays great stress on individual performance, on the notion of the master, of, of creating masterworks or masterpieces. The eternal network placed its stress on dialogue, even on the multilogue, the process of group research and the community of discourse. In crucial ways, 
I believe that the aesthetics of general idea emerged from a network ethos. And even until the end of their exemplary 25-year-long career, in their work, they continue to pay homage to this process of group research and the community of discourse. The network community that they had early encountered in Toronto, as well as in Winnipeg and in Vancouver. And yet, even in these early years, General Idea was especially attuned to the dialectical play between the stresses of art, the struggle for recognition, for professional opportunities, for canonization in a history not whispered, and the stresses of network, the effort of collectivity, of transactual and collaborative creation. The contradiction between artwork and network, between the community of the mouth and the community of the media, is the ground from which general ideas production emerged. The ways in which they negotiated these demonic relationships instruct us about the genius of this artist whose three heads are better than one, as well as the horizons of their practice. Perhaps for spiritual reasons, because they foresaw the pitfalls of the network logic, its risk of becoming a closed system, a circle, a system whose values apply only within itself, and perhaps also for not-so-spiritual reasons, because, as they claim provocatively, they wanted to be famous and glamorous and rich, General Idea recognized the artistic necessity of hierarchic forms of legitimacy, while remaining at some deep level committed to the network promise of a horizontal transactionality. The queen that's selected from among the beauties, the swan that stands apart from the pigeons, the one who was deemed best able to personify the spirit of Miss General Idea in 1971 was Michael Morris, Marcel Idea, who was declared, ambivalently of course, to have captured glamour without falling into it. This ambivalence is reiterated in the profoundly impossible notion of museums by artists. When A. Bronson describes himself as an artist writing about museums by artists about my own history, he's trying to imagine an impossible figure who would be historian and artist, archivist and artist, curator, curator and artist at one and the same time. For general idea, I believe this figure is exactly what the artist has always been in this place we call Canada. The artist is a figure that embodies the impossibly necessary and necessarily impossible idea that the energies of network culture could survive intact in the form of the autonomous artist. The idea that the creativity born of pure transitivity and anonymous flux could be preserved in the who's who genealogies of an artistic canon. And finally, that these energies, necessarily eternal and so without time, could be reconciled with a history not whispered. For artists to be artists here in Canada, we must remain poised uneasily between publicness and publicity. Thanks. I'd like to now introduce our third and final speaker. It's uh, Virginia Solomon, 
who's an art historian, curator, and critic whose work investigates intersections among art, social life, and politics. She's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California, working on a dissertation titled Queer Outsider Methods, General Ideas, Art and Politics, 1969-1994. She places general ideas practice in the context of an expanded and evolving conversation concerning the relationship between art and politics and argues that its incorporation of sexuality enabled it to reconfigure what constituted both political and artistic activity. Please welcome to the podium Virginia Solomon. a bit under the weather, but couldn't stand to be the fourth person to cancel on this event, so I'll try my best not to spill my water all over everything that can break. And also I promise I'm not checking my email, but rather trying to be respectful of our time limit. Um, so yeah, as Sholem mentioned, I uh, work, I'm writing a dissertation about how general idea rearticulated politics to include the stuff of everyday social life. Um, and in particular, um, how that rearticulation occurred through its incorporation of sexuality as it was understood in its kind of subcultural social scenes and also its artistic milieu. Um, and so what I'm going to be talking about today um, is about how a bit it's sort of like locating that sexuality and where it comes from through its um, collaborations with Image Bank um, and a number of other groups predominantly in Vancouver that Louis touched upon a bit um, and then also talk a bit about what sexuality was for gay liberation in Canada at least as it manifested in the newspaper The Body Politic. Um, and my, my work in general talks about how the sexuality structures the group and the group's kind of engagement with structure um, and social life as politics, even as it becomes more abstracted throughout its career from its initial um, social manifestations. So, in fact, how we can talk about, let's say, the AIDS posters as embodying a certain kind of sexuality as, as structure and as system, um, rather than being about desire, about who wanted to do what to who, when, or however we might want to decide, define sexuality more traditionally um, or practically. Um, but that there's, there's, there's still a way that this works. So this is kind of the beginning of, of that, um, of discussing how sexuality could be about this kind of like collective um, and iterative, iterative and continually mutable identification rather than being about just um, smooching. So there's a way in which what general ideas work, I think, is to reaffirm the politics of this. The politics, um, what we see with general ideas of is that politics is not necessarily just about demonstrations or about having coherent messaging or about voting or enacting some kind of electoral change, but rather politics can be about these moments, about these fragments, about these ways of making space for ourselves um, and for uh, social groups, for these networks that we've heard about from both Sholem and Louis, um, that that itself is fundamentally political, that it's not just about our more um, institutionalized power structures. And there's a, 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 the little bit that A.A. writes in his essay for Fern's Search for the Spirit Catalog when he says, we had abandoned our hippie backgrounds of heterosexual idealism 
abandoned any shred of belief that we could change the world by activism, by demonstration, by any of the methods we had tried in the 1960s, they had all failed. We abandoned bona fide cultural terrorism and replaced it with viral methods. Um, so I think just work, working off of that and, and this trying, kind of tra- trying to trace the ways through which uh, general idea even maps the way that social life can trace out a particular kind of politics that's a different kind of politics. Um, it's something that I think is interesting. And also I think markedly prescient as we hear more and more about people complaining about, you know, like the Occupy movements that are everywhere and their lack of a message and their lack of firm goals and things like that, that there is a history for politics without... Um, without goals, without a specific kind of efficacy. So, uh, as we see upstairs, general idea was certainly a consummate um, purveyor of its own mythology, and part of how this happened was through self-portraits. I like this one, though. It's one of the less talked about self-portraits. It's the self-portrait is Velvet Underground, and basically what they do is they have set up um, themselves in the format of Velvet Underground's third album, their self-titled album. Um, and so there's a way in which, particularly at the beginning, the first few years of its career, and its involvement with the Canada network, that particular subset of the Eternal Network, that um, practices were really about creating persona and about creating identities, but creating identities that, that were continually in flux. And so I like this self-portrait because it's not just about general idea creating its own identity, but creating its identity vis-a-vis a very specific reference to another one, a way of occupying um, a different identity as a way not to be that other thing, but as a way to give itself a different kind of meaning. And um, so, the, so general ideas, you all are probably familiar, but I'll gloss quickly, um, was, did a lot um, of mail art and was involved in correspondence networks. Um, but in particular, this one subset, Canadada, was not just about using the postal system to send mail and create works that were kind of autonomous works through the postal system, but rather using the postal system as a way to create, uh, create persona that were then lived in these kind of everyday, in people's everyday lives. Um, if you want to think about, you know, artists going to Babyland and living through those personas, or even Mr. Peanut running for mayor of Vancouver, um, and getting an impressive percentage of the vote given, I think it was 4%, which is cool because that's like what our Congress's approval rating is right now, so that's not too bad <laughs> by comparison. Um, there is a way in, in which mail was, mail was used as part of larger projects. Um, and so in 1974, this performance called the Hollywood Decadance was organized. Um, um, I think it was uh, the archives at the... Um, at the National Gallery of Canada, it seemed to apply that, that uh, Glenn Lewis and Michael Morris were sort of the progenitors of the idea, but then very quickly General Idea and also Lowell Darling um, of Los Angeles and then uh, Willoughby Sharp from New York uh, got in on organizing as well. So it was this large-scale performance that was an award ceremony for the artists uh, who were involved in Canada, as well as a celebration of Art's 1 million and 11th birthday, which was a riff on an earlier video performance that was a celebration of Art's 1 millionth birthday. Um, but also a way uh, sort of interspersed throughout this award show, which was very much uh, riffing on the Oscars and with its, uh, you know, its uh, comic interludes and MCs and musical numbers and things like that were slideshows that narrated. Um, these practices and kind of connected what could have been really confusing um, objects if they were viewed individually, but inserting them into a network where things were sort of really intentionally made to build upon each other. Um, so this, so that's what this, this Hollywood Decadence was. 
Um, and this is just a shot of the interior, which is an old Elks Lodge on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Um, this is uh, just a, a list of one of the, or a number of the awards. Um, and there's a way in which uh, a, a lot of this work it, it juggles these two different definitions of sexuality. There's the literal kind of sexuality, right? Like there's the fucking poodles. There's the best bulge, which Picasso wins. Um, with the, uh, with the, the line, art is the lie that reveals the truth. What that says about Picasso and his bulge, I, I don't know. There's no documentation, unfortunately. Um, but then there's also this other kind of sexuality. The sexuality is the, like what I'm calling collective identification. Um, for example, the category for best animal impersonation was won by Irene Dogmatic uh, of San Francisco, but as part of the slideshow that uh, Michael Morris, who was narrating the event at the time, showed was not of Irene Dogmatic, but of Clara Coldbear playing Irene Dogmatic. And so there's a way in which these personas aren't tied to specific people even. There's a way in which artists could play each other's um, personas as well, in a way that wasn't about acting, but was about really inhabiting. And so this is, um, as far as I understand, this is Clara Colbert playing, I mean, dogmatic. Um, and then, just as a, a, a further example of these artists incorporating the sort of like, this kind of structuring characteristics of each other's persona, these are cards um, that were in the annual artist directory issue of file that was published just after the Decadence. And so interspersed um, between the advertisements, you can see these cards, these you know, baseball card type um, things that say, you know, Art's Birthday, Sponge Dance, Hollywood, February 2nd and 3rd, 1974. And so each of these cards represents uh, an artist, much, I guess, like a, like a baseball card would. Um, and, and so we see their names written next to these characters, who um, the, the, that face is uh, the, a bunny that was a sort of a characteristic um, icon of another male artist named Ray Johnson, who had this organization called the New York Correspondence School, which uh, Glenn Lewis, who was one of the organizers of the event, played off of with his organization called the New York Chorus Sponge Dance School of Vancouver. So they're, you know, they're, they're, so they're taking on this Ray Johnson icon, which itself is this you know, sort of act of appropriation. Um, and, but we see, like, we see Jorge on the top. Oh, I have a pointer, so I can use that. So we see Jorge identified as your gay. Um, so again, this like play of literal sexuality and this kind of more structural sexuality. Um, and we see his sort of at at the time before um, he started, you know, keeping his hair short, his sort of like bushy hair um, and, and and his beard. But he's also wearing a leopard print. Um, uh, robe, which, you know, the, the, the leopard spots were this characteristic emblem of uh, the, the brutes, Dr. Brute and Lady Brute and their Brutopia. Um, that was this world that had leopard spots all over it. Um, and then this same kind of thing, we see Flaky, um, which was a reference to Flaky Rosehips, who was Glenn Lewis, who evidently was an avid chef, so a lot of his names, Flaky Rosehips and E.E. E. Claire, would reference um, cooking. So that, that's him, but he's wearing a the Mr. Peanut costume. And so there's, again, this way that the circulation of these emblems of these different persona were free game to a certain extent. And this, so this is, but the sexuality didn't come from, from nowhere. There's a way in which it was understood within general ideas context as having a, a kind of uh, valence. Um, and I would say that general idea didn't 
necessarily have a lot to do with the body politic in the uh, spirit of this event being a bit about gossip. Um, AA has, has told me, I hope I'm not betraying a confidence. Um, that, uh, you know, that, that you know, the body politic might have been a little bit suspect about general ideas work and not being, you know, manifesting the right kind of politics. This summer, members of the body politic collective told me that they felt a little bit like not cool enough to be able to hang out with you guys. So, you know, everybody. There's three sides to every two people you ask about a story. Um, but so the body politic was um, a gay liberation newspaper that grew fairly quickly to have national significance. Um, and these are, it was published collectively. Um, these, this is a photo of uh, one of the early manifestations of the collective. Um, but it's, this was a, a gay liberation newspaper manifesting a liberation kind of ethos. And so there isn't a way, while, or while advocating, advocating for certain rights did occur within the pages of the newspaper, it was also very much about articulating a different kind of social order or finding a way to think about different kinds of social orders. So this picture that's about celebrating the body towards an alternate aesthetic. Um, there are articles in, in the newspaper that regularly critique you know, wanting to build a, a gay ghetto, a gay social life, a very specific and defined and narrowly constructed um, you know, picture of what gay life was. And I think that, that this comes across in articles as well. In the first issue, uh, uh, someone named Jude, writing under the name of Radical Pervert, uh, writes an article called The Destruction of Sexual Duality. Um, so he uh, writes about his interest in undermining genital-based identities uh, as a way of maintaining a power structure. Um, and he talks about that what is kind of scary or threatening about homosexuality is not just its oral or anal sexual as elements, um, but rather that it's breaking one of the world's most important rules, the recognition of two distinct sexes and their appropriate performance. Um, one of the wall texts, up texts upstairs says the general idea wasn't so much gay as anti-patriarchal. Um, and whether we might or might not agree with the details of that statement, there is a way in which this sort of like structural intervention that they were calling upon sexuality to do was, I think, very important to its practice um, and to its politics. They certainly received a fair amount of criticism for this throughout their career. Um, this event, the uh, Halifax-Vancouver exchange that happened in 1972, General Idea wasn't there, being from neither Halifax nor Vancouver, but many of the artists with whom they collaborated were. And there was an event, uh, Glenn Lewis used to host this event called the Hot Little Stove in Vancouver, where people kind of come and hang out and you know, chit-chat. It was a salon type of event. And so he hosted one while he was in Halifax. And evidently, uh, they were excoriated by, in particular, Lawrence Wiener and James Lee Byers, who were these, you know, when we think of like our canonical New York conceptualist dudes, these, these were two of those guys, um, for, for its work, because it was silly and decadent and, and frivolous. Um, and these words that had a specific meaning within our context, but also sort of were code words for uh, homosexuality at the time. The, the guys received a similar kind of complaint. This isn't the article. This is the uh, Great Canadian Split, Split Project, where a general idea took this article that was uh, published in The Grape anonymously, but I think is uh, pretty routinely widely known. There was by Dennis Wheeler, who had to publish anonymously at the time because he was the West Coast representative for the National Gallery of Canada. Um, but also, 
um, similarly critiquing the group. Uh, he called the, the work of all of these artists, these Canada artists, a zoo of exotic phenomena. Um, but it also criticized it as being, you know, about being bad gay politics. Um, that rather than wanting to, to, to sort of like recognize the real struggle that was going on for gay rights, that being about this kind of like silly free display of sexuality was, was bad. Um, it's kind of the gist of, of the article. Um, and similarly, as um, Philip mentions uh, in a talk that he gave at Rivoli in November of 1982 that was later published as an editorial in Parachute Number 33, um, he um, interprets, or rather opines, that the uh, work um, was suspect as a vehicle for addressing questions of social engagement. He argued that they accommodated themselves to the realities that they sought to critique, saying, is it a critique of capitalism or a ruse of capitalism? Um, and so there's a way in which this sort of like through the years, and we see it as well in ACT UP's response to the group, um, this idea that their politics is bad politics, that it's not sufficiently clear or it's not, sufficient, or it's not adequately um, defined or hardline or consistent. Um, but I think there's a way that they actually incorporate these criticisms it's part of the systems that they're trying to engage and critique. Uh, and I think this is particularly clear in the video test tube. Um, and so what test, the, the test tube video, for those of you who might not be familiar, is uh, takes place in the Color Bar Lounge, which was a room in the 1984 General Idea Pavilion. Um, so this is, it materialized as an installation that is uh, visible upstairs. But the video itself, um, it tells in kind of a soap opera type format, complete with advertising, tells the story of Marianne, who is a, a painter, and sort of like her struggles to figure out where to go with her career. And it's broken up into five sections, and it's kind of sandwiched on each side, on, on the back end with a commercial, and on the front end with the, the guys in the bar kind of setting up a meta um, critique of the relationship between the media and art and, and politics, and sort of the different political possibilities for the different, um, or political possibilities that arts can manifest. So, um, you know, this is just the, the, the guys in the bar. This is uh, Marianne, um, you know, p painting. Um, and, then, and then these commercials, I think, very kind of clearly, although of course deliberately unclearly at the same time, as was the group's want, um, set out the different uh, possible political stances that one could take. And so this one is uh, Nazi milk, talking about fascism. This one is the revolutionary cocktail, um, also sometimes talked about as the, the party cocktail, um, obviously referencing both uh, the you know, kind of communist party politics, but also party as shindig. Um, and then this one is liquid assets, which is talking about capitalism. But what they ultimately present as the solution to, to these problems, to the question of what stance an artist should take with their work, um, what's the political part, what uh, political possibilities there are. What they call the, the solution is a hybrid, unsurprisingly, I think. Um, it's this, uh, this, this opportunistic, appropriative, navigational kind of politics where, you know, depending on your setting, depending what's around you, depending not only the need of what you need to engage with and you know, distance yourself from or make space for yourself within. Oh, here we go, sorry. 
Um, but also, but also the like structures and systems that are available to you. There's a way of inhabiting these kinds of things. They talk about television specifically, about how you know they don't want to destroy television; they want to occupy it and use it to stretch the social fabric. Um, I think that that's kind of a, a, a vital part, and maybe as clear as we ever get a definition of the politics of general ideas work, inexorably Im embedded into its social scene and its social life. Um, and so I think that with sexuality, that sexuality offered general idea a way to present this kind of politics of opportunity and appropriation, of hybridity and flexibility that proffered a new understanding of the revolution of the relationship among art, uh, politics, and culture that that we don't necessarily think it's together all the time. Um, or as Marianne puts it in Test Tube, a cure for abstract depressionism. What an intoxicating idea! People create their own solutions. Thanks. Uh, I would like to now invite both Virginia and Louis up on stage for the panel talk portion of the evening. On, on, yep, there you go. You can gawk at us while we awkwardly put on our mics. Yeah, we're getting a we're getting a little blue on stage here. Um, so. Um, in the half an hour that remains, um, I thought we might um, keep the, the panel chit-chat a bit brief and then open it up for questions. But I maybe wanted to kick things off um, by um, talking about something that I guess I think we sort of all glanced on slightly. Um, but sort of, uh, I wanted to talk about it in sort of a more direct, broader fashion, which is sort of um, general idea and camp. Mm. Um, and I sort of started thinking about that, especially, Virginia, during your talk, where I was sort of like, um, sort of trying to think about, sort of think about and around um, the sort of the evidence of these politics. And it struck me that the politics are the politics of camp. Is sort of the politics of sort of um, absorption and subversion. Um, yeah, and I thought maybe we could just have a brief little go round about that. Is that what you mean? Is that is that how you define camp yeah. as kind of appropriation and subversion? Um, that's a much longer panel talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's certainly a part of it. Okay, it's certainly like the. Um, uh, I, I sort of feel like sort of one of the this this kind of I think we were talking about this before um, to get back to what to what I was talking about what somebody else was talking about this sort of the stealing in and out of meaning is very much I think like a, a sort of an a, it's basically a um, a rather kind of astute shorthand for the mechanism of camp um, as sort of. Um, uh, the color bar, for instance, being the camping of television, the decadence being the camping of Oscars, and sort of, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And sort of that, this idea of, of kind of um, uh, 
yeah, just absorption and subversion and the kind of um, taking out meaning, inserting yourself, inserting meaning, and sort of creating this sort of new thing as, as a kind of a, a sort of a prime camp mechanism. Well, I think a key thing that camp also offers is the opportunity to be funny but still be taken seriously. Or there's a way in which... Um, where like humor and absurdity and all these other kinds of things that characterize this what critics at the time you know might characterize or characterize as silly practices um, to give that meaning and to give that consequence and so um, there's a way I mean not to be the historian but you know Sontag's camp which was originally written right. um, was about you know there's, there's like a certain kind of like sadness and accidentality and um, like the, uh, and tragedy to a certain extent, and I think that there's a way in which what the shows is the possibility of camp is not just being about accident, um, and not just being about like leftovers, um, but in fact being a very deliberate and conscious choice to to, to appropriate and inhabit. Um, so so I think that 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 is an important part of what the camp is doing as well. Right. It's fun. It's fun. It's something like, uh, and it's a technique that contemporaries use as well. I remember talking to um, to Nicole Eisenman and Neil Steiner, who are members of this art art collective called Ridiculous. And um, humor is also central to. They're very much a queer group, and humor is very central to what they do as well. Um, and they absolutely, it's like you know, sort of one of their first editing mechanisms is is to say, "Is this funny?" Um, and so I think that the humor, making humor matter. Right. Yeah, and I guess the idea of double meaning too, like, you know, I think queer people almost like genetically uh, have had to develop strategies of kind of saying two things at the same time and mm-hmm. kind of codifying your message so that for one audience they, it, me- it means one thing, for another audience, a queer audience, it means it can mean something totally different. And so this kind of facility with double meaning, double entendre. Uh, and kind of using forms that already exist. Um, and those forms kind of don't necessarily have a place for you built in or for your identity or your desires or whatever. Uh, but being able to utilize them uh, in order to find precisely kind of places for you or kind of codes that you can kind of inhabit yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Then let's let's bring this back mm-hmm. to the topic at hand, the general mm-hmm. idea. I, I really liked your talk and this kind of idea of fiction follows form and kind of these different moments in, in very recent Toronto history when, like what, what I saw in common about all the three examples that you use is that in a way they're, they're performing something that they wish existed. Right. You know? You know, the idea of a scene, like a kind of mm-hmm. Toronto or a Canadian art scene, uh, this, this kind of queer music, uh, the, this punk music scene that includes queerness in it. You know, like in JDs, they always used to say, like, you know, putting the gay back in punk. Right. Because uh, punk means, yeah, yeah, you know, a, 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 a sexually receptive person in prison, right? It's prison slang yeah. for someone who's, like, been turned gay or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and also with Will, like, kind of creating a community that 
he needed to exist, but that didn't pre-exist, but in a way just kind of behaving and acting the community that you wish was there. Right. You know, like, I, I like this kind of idea of, I don't know if it's like a camp strategy, but I this kind so. of double process of, of behaving as, as if what you want is real, but that behavior makes it real. Yeah. And it attracts people to it. And yeah. they make it real, you know? I, I, I think that's sort of a, that's a camp strategy very much so. Sort of like, um, um, I've always said it's sort of um, elevating yourself, using sort of what's around you, uh, using your own imagination, mm. using sort of... Um, using your circumstances to kind of elevate yourself above your own banality. I was sort of, and then sort of above the sort of the mundanity of your circumstances. Um, and I sort of, I always thought that that was a sort of a, a particular, like, this, this sort of notion of like, I am legend. That seems to me to be a very camp utterance, you know. And, and you know, when, when you announce, you sort of, uh, you know, I am a corporation. I need a pavilion. We have the spirit. We have sort of, um, you know, we have our avatar as Miss General Idea. These are all. These are all very sort of camp statements and camp actions and camp sentiments. Um, not only are they, not only are they sort of projecting themselves onto the sort of the grander idea of the corporation. Um, they're also absorbing the corporation into them, the idea of the corporation into them, the idea of the pavilion into them. So it's kind of this, it's this, uh, this sort of double movement of sort of projecting yourself onto something and taking something within yourself and taking it for your own ends. Which I also think is, is a way in which that functions as camp as well. Um, what I was thinking when you were talking about double, double entendre mm-hmm. is, I think it's not so much that it's speak that means one thing in one context and another in another context, but rather that it means one thing in one context and two things in another context. And so this, like, projecting yourself but also incorporating, there's a way in which I think the appropriations that General Idea made were not taking something and completely re-articulating it or redefining it, but rather keeping that original and using that and sort of like sweeping that up into what the new thing, the new thing was. And so I think that that's very, that in particular is very true to the group's practice. Hmm. And I guess that's where the humor comes in, is when you see the two meanings at the same time. Yeah. You know, when you can see that it still means two things at the same time. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, in a number of different interviews, different members of the group would say that the pieces that they felt, the pieces were most successful when they meant different things when people brought different interpretations out of them. And so when they, in fact, could generate contradictory meetings is when they were most successful. Mm. And that's what, like, Jorge was talking about in, uh, in Shut the Fuck Up in the video upstairs. Yeah. You know, about one set of meanings, you know, is displaced by another, and then you crack up, you know. And one kind of thing that I don't know really much about, one early project was this Humpty Dumpty, mm. you know, yeah. and... and in a lot of the kind of correspondence stuff, you see this kind of reference to Humpty Dumpty and putting the pieces together again. But you know, this idea that when something cracks, kind of new space happens and, and you don't know what to do with it, but you, you, all of a sudden you have this new space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Jorge in the video talks that that's, that's, that's the joke. You get the joke when you crack up. Yeah. You know? yeah. 
Um, should we open it up to questions? Yes. Yeah. Just wait until the microphones <laughs> make their way around. Um, microphones here, and we'd like you to use them, please, to ask questions. So, do we have a question? People are still thinking. <laughs> I actually have a question. Something that I was thinking about, Louis, when, when you were talking, was when you're talking about um, about medium, and is that medium is a thing in which to grow a tissue. Um, in test tube, in particular, there's, there's a monologue that Felix has about um, kind of about pharmacological experimentation and talking about culture. And culture also has these double meanings. As culture is a thing that you know, like we live all around as popular culture, but culture is also like a, a, a solution that is a medium for growing biological, you know, bacteria or or, or, or whatever. Um, and so it seemed like that, you know, when when you're talking about tissue and connective tissue, there's a sort of like a biological connection that happens there, but um, I think that like the, the sort of the term that I use, and I think that comes from the, the group's appropriation of William Burroughs is of, of the virus, and so of this sort of like infecting and inhabiting thing is being kind of a viral um, part of their their work. And I just wonder what might like what, what the significance is, or what the connection might be between thinking about um, like virus as a strategy, but then also this sort of community fabrication, or about um, this, this, these mediated communities, and particularly these mediated communities as not would, the mouth-to-mouth communities being about the place where you might think the virus, you know, cold or whatever. Like, would it, since we all have one right now, <laughs> you know, it's like it's where that happens. But then when we're talking about these mediated communities, if there's any sort of like significance or overlap or evocation that happens mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand the kind of metaphors that you're using. Um, you know. I hadn't quite thought of virus in terms of like, you know, I talked about uh, communities of the mouth and communities of the medium, you know, which is to say like the community of people close together working on something, creating something, right, through immediate relationships. And then, so that's the culture of the mouth and the kind of the culture of the medium is having a relationship to people not in my immediate vicinity, but that I relate to you know, through correspondence art or the internet or whatever, or art magazines. Uh, and I, you know, I hadn't quite thought of how viruses would work in that, those two scenarios. And it will might not. There's kind of, you know, there's <laughs> infection kind of from, from uh, I guess when, when we say that our communities are getting too incestuous, you know, when there's just too much inbreeding or something like that, when we're too close together mm-hmm. and we don't have like, either a perspective on ourselves or new input from, uh, from the outside. Um, you know, you, you talked about Brutopia and, uh, you know, Lady Brute and Dr. Brute, uh, Eric Metcalf and Kate Craig, mm-hmm. and they used to talk about, um, like, image bondage, you know, mm-hmm. and Kate Craig did this video called Skins where she got, she wore her leopard print uh, clothes f- for video and then put them away. You know, she wore them for the last time and then put them away. And so that's kind of her way of breaking out of this image bondage that her, her avatar had just become too constricting. Uh, and then, you know, on the other hand, we have these kind of communities of media and there are viruses too. I mean, we get like computer viruses and, and things that just kind of pop out of nowhere and we don't even know how they work, uh, but they disrupt the natural flow of things. So I'm not sure how that metaphor would work. Like, yeah. 
in, in that case. But it is, I hadn't quite thought of that, like how does the virus metaphor play out in these two models of community? Yeah. Were you thinking of anything specific about that? Uh, no, I was just, it was just something that came to mind, because when we do talk about medium, you know, like you grow things in, like the culture is the uh -huh. medium the in which you grow. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I didn't mm -hmm. have any. Mm -hmm. thought. Yeah, hi. Um, I, I, coming at this really as a bit of an outsider, not really one uh, of an insider to the art world or really to general ideas, larger work, but having, remembering, being exposed to them for the first time really as a young person, as part of ACT UP and part of the AIDS movement in the, in the, in the early 90s, actually in, in New York and, and in other places too. I was just wondering, you know, you're talking about virus and I was just wondering how you talk about, you've mapped out beautiful narratives of the strategies, um, you know, form uh, falling fiction, and just I'm just curious as to your reflections on how the virus as AIDS and HIV/AIDS, you know, might have presented a challenge for some of those strategies and some of General Idea's responses, and, and uh, you know, is that a crisis moment, a changing moment, you know, because I have this feeling, from my perspective, again as an outsider of this sort of pre-AIDS general idea and then this right. AIDS moment general idea. Right. Um, is that to me specifically or to all of us? Anybody? Go down the line. Okay. Um, I sort of, <clears throat> I, I feel like with general idea, um, metaphor and reality become these kind of cruel ironic echoes of each other um, and um, it, it's this sort of like this devastating irony that their entire career um, had been premised on the idea as sort of um, viruses in the media and then um, they had to cope with the reality of AIDS um, um, and so, it, like, it's 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 almost alarming, in fact, um, how there's this this strange. Um, I don't even know. It's like a slippage, a transmutation of metaphor into reality. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I find the sort of um, the most sort of cruelly poetic part of of sort of their narrative. Uh, we were talking about it just before. I just, and just sort of to move into sort of more concrete artworks, we were talking about it just before, just, just prior to the talk, about um, the initial reception um, to the image virus campaign. Um, and sort of immediate, the immediate reception, uh, I just sort of finished uh, reading Greg Bordowitz's a very excellent book on that. And the immediate reception being total hostility um, and the fact that it's sort of general ideas mode of, of sort of, of codes and of, of sort of sly subversions um, were not enough in the moment that, um, that this was 
this was a terrible moral crisis, and it demanded more than than sort of than subtle image play. But now, to me, again, at a generation's remove, um, uh, as sort of having grown up in the shadow of in the shadow of that, um, I mean, to put it really bluntly, when it, it, you know, when General Idea died, I was 15. Um, and I was being taught in, in my high school, I would be, like, basically I was being taught that sex would kill me. Um, so now at a generation's remove, having learned so much since then, since, sort of, since I was 15, having learned so much since General Idea died, uh, and sort of, to me, the image virus stuff seems, and, and particularly the, the AIDS love thing, um, narrates this, and it narrates beautifully this kind of seismic cultural shift of sort of the end of free love, the end of sort of the, he, the, sort of the hedonism of gay liberation, and the beginning of a much sort of more darker age, uh, a much more ironic age. Um, I bet that's a bit glib, actually. Forget I said ironic. Um, but it sort of it narrates this shift um, into um, how we conceive of sex, how we conceive of love, how we conceive of, of queerness, how we conceive of, of queer politics and body politics and AIDS politics. Um, so to me, I find, I find the AIDS work um, so sort of poignant and precise and succinct and valuable. Um, and then sort of, and then you read accounts of it, accounts of its reception at the time, and it was just sort of reviled as being just not enough. And I find that, I find that an interesting, um, an interesting thing, observation, juxtaposition, other. <laughs> Louis? Yeah, I don't know if I have a lot to add to what you said, but I do find it really uncanny, I have to say, how the metaphor of the virus was there kind of from the very beginning in their work. You know, and then it took a whole other dimension in the 80s during the AIDS crisis. Uh, but it is like really almost supernatural, I would say, how, you know, form follows fiction really strange. Um, I think something that I try to do in my talk is, I think it's, I think one kind of um, easy inherited way to interpret like irony is as kind of uh, a, a kind of above it all glibness or something like this. But I've tried, I, I, I actually detect other emotions within irony and and what I try to pull out, you know, out of the, the towards an audience vocabulary, which is a very funny, funny, funny uh, uh, piece, is, you know, I, I sense a kind of uh, deep poignancy about that piece and as a comment of, like, we don't have an audience, you know? Like, it's almost like a cry. Like, how are you supposed to be an artist without an audience, right? And, and these are the kind of layers that I'm really interested in their work. And I think the AIDS kind of logo uh, pieces have this amazing almost blankness. You know, the face is almost blank. 
uh, and the colors are so jaunty and you know vibrant but but what's behind it is like these other emotions uh, like I kind of I, I came of age sexually let's say like as a teenager like in the 80s so it was so I kind of think I'm like almost like a baby of AIDS. Like I never lived as a sexual person pre-AIDS. Like it was, you know, kind of like what you were saying, Sholem. Mm. Um, and I remember like there were, there were exhibitions about AIDS and kind of books about artists dealing with AIDS and photographers. And it was very important to kind of give a face to AIDS because, you know, that was the, the 80s were the time of the conservative right-wing religious conservatism backlash. You know, it's Reagan and Thatcher and Mulroney and everything else. So it's kind of that pendulum swing that we're still in the shadow of. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea of someone being sick was used as this kind of code word for like God's punishment, you know. Uh, like, it, it was very easy to talk about AIDS people, AIDS victims. And so a lot of artists, the strategy was, no, you have to give a face to this thing being called the AIDS victim or the AIDS carrier or the AIDS whatever. Uh, there were worse terms for that. You know, and so a lot of artists depicted, kind of made it human, right? Like, this is a person with AIDS. It's not like this kind of demon, devil, you know, in, 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 in the fear of your imagination. It's actually a person dealing with an illness. And, and a community dealing with that together. Uh, and in that context, it's so interesting how like the AIDS logo is so blank or kind of like um, minimalist almost. Uh, and I'm interested in kind of the layers of, of emotions that are carried through and that still persist. I mean, you know, seeing that wallpaper upstairs of the white on white AIDS wallpaper, it's, it's so intense. You know, like you almost see like it's a white wall and then you almost think like you have like the AIDS logo burnt into your retina and you're seeing AIDS when AIDS isn't there. And then you realize that it actually is there in like the faintest of colors. I mean, that's like really mm. intense uh, emotions being codified in a, in a work. Do you have anything? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think something to keep in mind as well is that in the New York context in which the, the project first materialized, um, Officials wouldn't talk about AIDS. Like, not, mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 1987, and the piece mm -hmm. was sort of conceptualized in 1986. And so there's a way in which what the project does is almost enact a branding campaign to mm -hmm. a certain extent for something that didn't have a name. And, um, you know, like, with, in terms of having the project in the subway, like, and having it move through the city, having it in signposts all over, on, on billposts all over the place, there's kind of a defamiliarization of something that was intensely scary and something that, in fact... As any like as ACT UP would point out, um, was part of a institutionally propagated campaign of misinformation. You know, the actively refusing to have sex education in schools so that people thought that they could get AIDS from their dentist or sitting on a toilet seat after someone. You know, like all this shit. Um, and so I think the way that it's inter the, the way that the project works in that context um, has it have more specificity. Um, and maybe like systematic specificity than just looking at, at the poster and what the poster might communicate. Um, and part of what I was trying to get to with my talk is that the politics of the group is not about that kind of message politics. It's not about, and it's, it's not saying that direct action is, is bad by any means. It's just enacting a different kind 
of, um, of, of criticism and projects. And so whereas, um, you know, wear a condom or, or beat it or any of these other camp- these sort of like more famous um, act up Grand Fury posters that were very didactic or that were directly attacking, you know, um, having Reagan with like neon hypnotic bullseye alert or whatever spinny thingy hypnotizing the eyes, you know, with AIDS gate across it. You know, like, that's a very direct message, but it's a very different kind of communication than what's going on with the AIDS project. And so I think something... So I, I curated a, a show um, with a good friend of mine, and we showed the image virus posters, and a lot of people... Well, Greg um, was part of it, and also a, a number of other members of ACT UP were part of it, and then came to see it, and listening to their reflections, I'm viewing the piece now and sort of remembering... Um, what a lot of them would kind of laugh about is their follies of youth of writing it out, writing it off so completely when it first, um, when they first saw it in the late '80s, was that that there's so much more going on and so much more of an engagement with the systems and the structures, not just of you know communication and and research funding and education and stuff like that, but very fundamental way that we come to understand what bodies mean and the significance of bodies and the beginning and end of bodies and all this kind of stuff, this very like, fundamental politics of representation that wasn't going to get money to AIDS research or wasn't going to speed up the testing process so that drugs could get into people's bodies faster, but that would make us think about how we come to conceptualize all those things in, in, in the first place. Isn't a politics of that, that's going to necessarily get immediate kinds of results, but that wasn't ever really a part of the larger practice, the group's larger practice. I think at this point, excuse me, losing my voice, I'd like to thank the three of you for your very thoughtful presentations and deliberations and giving testimony to the fact that uh, really this general idea is still so relevant and will continue to provoke response. The exhibition certainly has been doing extremely well. So I thank all three of you very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.